meaning I guess we're different. We're distinctive, weird. And the reason, of course, is that we follow Jesus, and Jesus is definitely weird. After all, he's a king who sets aside his power to become a servant and wash the cruddy, disgusting feet of ordinary people. He's the Messiah who criticizes his own tribe but then turns around and forgives his enemies. He's the miracle worker who heals people and then says, shh, don't tell anyone that I've done this for you. Jesus is weird. And the whole purpose of the Christian life is to apprentice ourselves to Jesus so that we can become like him. So that his weirdness can rub off on us. And so this spring, we are exploring some of the weird ways that Christians relate to one another. And today we're going to zero in on how Jesus calls us to value and depend on one another. Every human being needs three things to thrive. We need freedom, community, and meaning. We need all three. But in the West, we have gone, we have gone all in when it comes to freedom. And we've mostly neglected the other two. We have secured for ourselves the freedom to create our own identity, to live however we choose, and to express that life to the full. But at the same time, we are experiencing dramatically lower levels of happiness and well-being and a rapid rise in anxiety and depression. Why? Because while freedom from oppression is vital to human flourishing, freedom by itself does not lead to abundant life. Rousseau said that freedom without constraints produces its own kind of slavery. Kierkegaard said that anxiety is just the dizziness of freedom. So we have too much freedom and we have coupled that with an enormous deficit of community and meaning. The latest report from the Surgeon General reveals a pandemic of loneliness that is taking a massive toll on our physical emotional, mental, and societal health. Another way of thinking about this is that every person is haunted by three big questions. Who am I? That's the question of identity. Where do I fit? That's the question of belonging. And what difference can I make? That's the question of purpose. And Western society has elevated the first question high above the other two, and not without a cost. Today we're going to talk about how the gospel moves us to value and depend on one another in a way that balances our need for freedom, community, and meaning. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a fledgling church. We met the Apostle Paul last week. He's the guy who was out arresting Christians and throwing them into prison until one day he encountered Jesus. Jesus literally knocked him off his horse and blinded him temporarily. Paul uh, surrendered his life to Jesus and eventually became the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And one of the churches that he started is, uh, was in a, a city called Corinth. Corinth was a, a very cosmopolitan city, very influential and very pagan. There were lots of issues in the church, uh, rivalries, 
division, incest, uh, prostitution, class warfare. <laughs> it was a mess. Uh, well, the church had, had uh, gotten together and they had written to Paul and they'd asked him a whole bunch of questions and one of the questions had to do with spiritual gifts. So, so what are spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are special abilities given by God to believers so that we can build one another up to become more like Jesus. Well, uh, some of the believers in Corinth were convinced that they were better than everyone else because their spiritual gifts, they thought, were more important than everyone else's spiritual gifts. Now, where'd they get that idea? Last week, we talked about how the Greco-Roman world was a, an honor-shame culture. And in honor-shame cultures, the most important thing about a person is your status, your rank. It's all about how much honor and esteem you have. So it's very normal in that culture to compete for standing in the community, to try to be top dog. Well, in addition to that, most of the people in this church were coming out of paganism. And in the pagan religion of that time, if you were super charismatic and could hold people's attention and captivate people with your words, you had an elevated status in the community. So people in Corinth, they're coming to faith in Jesus, which is good, but they're bringing their old worldview, their old value system with them uh, to church. And so Paul says, look, you need to learn to think differently about spiritual gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, he says, there are different kinds of gifts. They're not all the same. But the same Spirit distributes all of them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. What's Paul saying? He's saying two things. First, all of the gifts are from God, which means they're all equal. So whether God has gifted you to, to stand up in front of people and teach or to serve quietly behind the scenes or to, to pray in secret, all the gifts come from him and they're all essential. They're all equally important. And then the second thing Paul is saying is the gifts aren't about you. They're not for boosting your image. They're for building up the church. You're just the conduit. Stop thinking that you're hot stuff. Just, just think about the word gift. You can't take credit for a gift. It's a gift. A gift should make you feel grateful, not superior to someone else. What are you good at? What has God given you the ability to do well? Whatever that is, thank God for it and use that gift to serve others. In verse 12, we, we get right to the heart of this part of the letter. Paul compares the church to a human body, and actually he compares it to the body of Jesus. And it's meant to be a metaphor of unity and diversity. Now, this metaphor would have been very familiar to Paul's audience because it was used by the Greeks and the Romans all the time to describe civic life. So here Paul goes, verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So Paul is saying, look, not only do you have different spiritual gifts, you have different ethnic and religious and socioeconomic backgrounds. There is so much diversity in this little church. And yet, there's an essential unity. Elsewhere, uh, Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The church, for all its diversity, is steeped in oneness. Now, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around just how weird this would have been back in the day. But the notion that Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, men and women, rich and poor, would belong to one another, would consider each other family, that was completely unheard of. That had never happened before in history. And if it feels normal to us, that's only because Christianity made it normal. Paul is saying, you guys are all over the map, socially and spiritually, and yet you belong to one another because of Jesus. Verse 17, he continues the metaphor. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So unity and diversity. All right, so in Paul's day, uh, this metaphor was used by the upper classes to placate and oppress the lower classes. Someone in power would say, hey, we're all part of one body in this community, but let's be honest. We're not all equally important. Okay, some of us are the eyes and the lips and the hands, and some of us are toes. Some of us are armpits. And some of us are so embarrassing we have to keep covered up all the time. Some of us are prominently displayed for everyone to see, and and some of us should just never see the light of day. That's how the metaphor was used. That's what the church was expecting Paul to say. But Paul instead flips the script. Listen to verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be 
no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. (laughs) This is really brilliant what Paul is doing. He is using the culture's metaphor basically to deconstruct the culture's worldview. He's saying, forget status. Forget rank. You're done thinking like that. From now on, you are going to value and depend on one another because everyone is equal in the eyes of God. And everyone is essential to the body. In fact, the parts of the body that you might think are less important, we're going to treat them with special honor. Now, there's an uncomfortable truth here which is we tend not to value people correctly. We tend to overvalue things like physical attractiveness, charisma, charm, persuasiveness, glamour, humor. We tend to to overvalue these things. At the same time, we tend to undervalue things like integrity, humility, Courage, self-control, restraint, faithfulness. Paul is saying, look, you should not trust your instincts when it comes to how to value and honor people. Who did Jesus honor? Who did Jesus go out of his way to commend? Do you remember? Jesus commended the widow who gave a very meager offering, but it was all she had. Jesus commended the the Roman centurion, one of Israel's enemies, who trusted in the authority of Jesus' words. Jesus commanded the Syrophoenician woman who stood up to Jesus when he used a derogatory slur to draw her out. Jesus commended children who came to him with nothing. Jesus commended Mary who neglected her culturally expected duties as a host in order to sit at Jesus' feet. Jesus commended the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and who wove her way through the crowds so that she could touch Jesus and be healed. Jesus commended the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Kind of a weird list, isn't it? Mostly women, children, and foreigners, now that I think about it. Not exactly a who's who of the rich and powerful. And none of these people caught anyone else's eye. Just Jesus' eye. That by itself should humble us and make us think we do not value people the same way Jesus does. Who do you think Jesus would commend today? God, give us eyes to see. Paul is saying, look, the people up front, the pastor, the teacher, the musician, they get plenty of honor already. We should be going out of our way to make sure we honor the person who prays for the church every day while recovering from a life-threatening illness. We should be honoring the homeless person who is trusting God for daily bread. 
We should be honoring the grandparents who are making sure that their grandkids know about Jesus, even if their parents don't. We should be honoring the peacemaker who tries to help people work through their conflict. We should be honoring the people who stay long after the service has ended to help put away chairs. Don't get sucked into the world's upside-down value system. Don't assume that the real action happens on stage. God is at work in and through all kinds of people in all kinds of places in all kinds of ways, and they're all beautiful, whether we have eyes to see them or not. And then Paul comes to a crescendo in verses 25 and 26 when he says, all the parts of the body should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, everyone rejoices with it. So instead of competing with one another for glory, we should enter into each other's joys and sorrows. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, that that totally resonates with me. I am 100% on board with the idea that everyone is important and everyone should be valued equally. Everyone gets a trophy, I'm there. Good. Awesome. I actually think that this metaphor challenges us in a different way than it challenged Paul's hearers. I think the challenge for us is the idea that we belong to each other, period. Because if that's true, then guess what? You are not an autonomous individual. You are a dependent creature. You can have all the freedom in the world, but you cannot thrive without a community. That's weird. Paul is saying there is no such thing as self-actualization apart from a community. If you trust your instincts, if you trust that little voice in your head, if you trust that that little voice can steer the ship all by itself, guess what? Eventually, you are going to be dashed on the rocks of reality. You cannot thrive on your own. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself. You cannot sustain joy in isolation. You cannot become mature on your own. You are not an autonomous individual. You are a dependent creature. And you need more than freedom to thrive. You need a community. Do you realize that even Jesus depended on other people? And not just when he was a kid. I mean, as a full-grown man, as a rabbi, Jesus depended on others every single day for food and shelter and to support his ministry. Jesus depended on others for prayer and moral support. He was desperate for it in the final hours of his life. Jesus wrote nothing down. He never traveled more than 85 miles from his home. His public ministry only lasted three years. Jesus depended on others to preserve his words and to bring the gospel to the nations. Now, I'm not saying that God lacks anything or that he needs us to accomplish his purposes. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just making the observation that when Jesus was in the flesh, he depended on others in very practical ways. And if Jesus depended on others, how much more should we? The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor argues that an identity that's rooted in the self in our talents, our tastes, our accomplishments, that kind of an identity is incredibly fragile. It needs recognition and affirmation constantly, and it never gets enough. 
It can't stand up to criticism or failure or suffering or loss. And Taylor says this is a big reason why modern people are so prone to depression and suicide. Alternatively, an identity that is based on your connection to things outside of yourself is much more stable, especially if it's rooted in relationships of mutually self-giving love. The reason the Corinthian Christians kept putting each other down was in an honor-shame culture, that was how you gained a sense of self. The reason that Americans demonize people on the other side of the political aisle is because in the absence of deep community, this is how we're trying to gain a sense of self. Paul is offering a much better way. He is inviting us to see each other not as competition, but as partners, as pilgrims on the same journey, as members of the same family. We have a tendency in America to read this passage through a very pragmatic lens. Often the way it gets preached and taught goes something like this. Look, there's a lot of work to do in the church, but God gives us all different kinds of gifts. So if each one of us does our part, all the work will get done. That's more or less true, but that is not at all the point that Paul is making. Paul's point is that God is creating a new humanity, a community in which people are learning to depend on and delight in and defer to and learn from and be vulnerable with and trust and serve one another across ethnic and socioeconomic lines. We come to one another as bundles of strengths and weaknesses, We have gifts to offer one another, but we also have burdens that need to be shared and needs that need to be met. And that, along with the blood of Jesus, binds us together in unity. We belong to one another. To belong to the body of Christ means a lot more than, I'm a gifted musician, so I'm going to play in the band. To belong to the body means that when we suffer, We choose not to suffer alone. When we have needs, we choose not to keep them hidden. When we are tempted to sin, we choose to ask others to pray for us. When we fall into sin, we confess our sins to one another. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. And this is hard, this is messy especially since we've been steeped in rugged individualism our whole lives. To live deeply into this new life is going to require thousands and thousands of little deaths. Deaths to our independence. Deaths to our privacy. Deaths to all of our attempts to save and secure ourselves by ourselves. Learning how to value and depend on one another is a lifelong process. But over time, we really can make progress. Belonging to the body for me means that when I'm overwhelmed, I let some trusted people know. I invite them to get close, to share my burden with me and to pray for me. I haven't always done this. 
There have been times when I've tried to do it all by myself, and that's when I've crashed and burned. Belonging to the body means that when I hit a wall and I can't do what's expected of me, I tap out and invite someone else to tap in. I haven't always done this either, but I'm learning how to live within my limits and how to rely on others. Belonging to the body means that since God has entrusted Beth and me with two kids, we try to get as many wise, caring, mature, godly adults involved in their lives as possible because we know we can't raise them alone. And we're so proud of our kids. Though we can't take all the credit for it because God has used so many of you in their lives. And so you too get to share in our pride and joy because you have been part of the cloud of witnesses cheering our kids on and modeling for them a life of faith, hope, and love. Belonging to the body means when I have a big decision to make, I seek wise counsel because I know I'm not an expert and there's a lot that I don't see. Belonging to the body means I constantly seek input and feedback on my character and my leadership. And I try my best to receive that feedback without defensiveness because I have so much to learn from my my brothers and sisters and you have so many ways of helping me to grow in wisdom and maturity. Belonging to the body means I don't have to do it all. I can play my part and I can let other people play their part. And I can celebrate other people's successes, whether that's at college church or some other church up the road. Belonging is messy. There's no way around that. But most of the joy, most of the growth that I have experienced in my walk has been the direct result of valuing and depending on others rather than trying to navigate life on my own. Our culture says... You have choices. You have so many choices. And you can choose whatever you want. And nobody can tell you that your choices are wrong. It's your choice. Look at all these options. Every time you choose, you get to declare to the world, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. What a lame story. What a shallow Lonely, dead-end story to live out. We have a better story. The gospel says you have beautiful gifts to share with the world. And you also have needs. You are totally unique, but you are not self-sufficient. You are loved. You belong. You have as much a right to be here as anybody You are part of something bigger than yourself. You have a family. And just like you, everyone in the family has their gifts and their needs. You need what your family members have, and your family members need what you have. And all our needs and gifts bind us together along with the blood of Christ so that over time we become a community that radically serves and delights in and depends on one another in an ever-widening, ever-deepening dance of mutually self-giving love. Now, isn't that a beautiful story? It can be your story. We can live out that story together. You can start today. What do you say?
Let me give you four questions to think about today and this week. First question is, how am I a gift to the community? Ask yourself, what do I do well? Am I a good listener? Am I faithful in prayer? Am I eager to provide practical help? Am I merciful? Do hurting people feel safe around me? Do they feel loved by me? Has God given me a heart for a specific group of people, maybe the homeless, refugees, single parents, widows, teenagers, people with disabilities, Yankees fans? (laughs) Am I hospitable? Do I love to gather people, bring people together? Can I teach people how to pray and read the Bible? Can I share my faith with gentleness and respect and winsomeness? What do I do well? Whatever that is, don't use it to build your brand. Use it to build up others. Be weird. Be weird. Second question, what do I need from the community? Please don't hide your weaknesses. Please don't hide your needs. Share them. Be vulnerable. Weakness breeds intimacy. Are you in a small group? Maybe that's the most natural place for you to ask for help. Do you have a spiritual need? Contact an elder or a shepherd. Do you have a practical need or a financial need? Contact a deacon. All of our contact information is on the back of the bulletin. It's on our website. Are you trying to survive an earthquake event in your life? You're not alone. A pastor could help. A therapist could help. Don't underestimate the power of a friend who knows how to listen and pray for you. But do not hide your weaknesses and needs. Be weird. Third question. Who can I go out of my way to give special honor to this week? Who is using their gift to serve others in ways that we don't always pick up on? I want to get better at noticing the people Jesus noticed. I want to get better at commending the people Jesus commended. A couple years ago at our staff meetings, we started asking the question every week, who should we appreciate? (laughs) Who should we thank? And I think just the habit of asking that question on a regular basis opens our eyes and helps us to go looking for it. Don't make a beeline to the people up front. We don't need any more honor. Keep your eyes peeled for those who serve behind the scenes. Be weird. And then finally, how can I expand my circle? How can I intentionally value and depend on people from different backgrounds than me? The homogeneous unit principle is the idea that churches grow fastest when people don't have to cross ethnic or cultural or socioeconomic lines. Now, I don't care if that's true. It's demonic. Jesus gave his life to reconcile us to God and to one another. When only birds of a feather flock together, first of all, we impoverish ourselves in every way. Secondly, we fail to demonstrate the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus to reconcile enemies and make them friends. And then thirdly, we give ignorance and fear a foothold because we're not in in the lives of people who are different than us. 
So when you have a choice to introduce yourself to someone who looks like you and someone who doesn't, someone you think, oh, I could easily find something in common with that person, someone you're like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about with that person, choose the latter. Die to yourself. Die to your comfort. Test the gospel to see if it's true. Ask someone out for coffee who's old enough to be your mom or dad or young enough to be your son or daughter. Stay weird, church. Would our communion servants come forward? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends. They were celebrating the Passover when God rescued the Hebrews and led them out of slavery. Jesus took the Passover bread and he gave it new meaning. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this and remember me. Jesus is the one who leads us out of slavery to ourselves. He is the one who leads us into true freedom of fellowship with God and other people. Likewise, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant established in my blood, given for the forgiveness of sins. God does not put us under contract. He puts us under grace. And because of that, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Jesus condemned sin in his flesh. So now we do not live according to the flesh and its selfish desires, but according to the spirit who is at work within us, renewing our desires and making them like Jesus' desires. So this meal is for anyone who is learning how to trust and obey Jesus as our Savior and as the expert on how life works best. So, if that's you, we invite you in just a moment to come forward to receive the bread and the cup. Bring them back to your seat. Repent. Repent of the ways in which pride and fear have kept us from valuing and depending on one another as we should. And ask God to help us to see one another through his eyes as masterpieces who bear God's image and as need bearers who, just like us, depend on others to flourish as God's children. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure what to make of Jesus. First of all, we're glad that you're here. And second of all, we want to give you a couple options. You can stay right where you are and just kind of watch this unfold. On the back of the bulletin are some prayers that invite you into a conversation with God. But another option would be to come forward with your hands closed just to receive a blessing. But to be among those who are making a conscious decision with your body to seek something outside of yourself. To say, if God is real, I, I want to know him. And if he has something to offer me, I want to receive it. And if the, the course I'm on right now is a dead end. I want to stop and move in a new direction. 
and having the faith to get up out of your seat and pursue a God you don't know yet and you're not even sure is real could be a really beautiful step in that direction and making something like faith your own. Once everyone is seated and served, we will eat and we'll drink together as a sign to one another and to the world that we belong to one another and that we are part of the body of Christ and part of the family of God. Come to the table. Thank you.